0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Thousand Oaks, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Thousand Oaks, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Thousand Oaks. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
1: Welcome everyone to The Investor's Source, your source of all wealth and wisdom. I am here today, I'm Dave Goldberg, president of Investor's Source. I am honored to have with us today uh, a friend and someone I've known for basically back to the beginning of our company about 11 years ago, James Orr, James is one of the top real estate people in all of Northern Colorado. He's been a broker for Your Castle Real Estate uh, for many, many years, focusing now on real estate education and real estate financial advising, which is a cool thing I haven't heard of much. So uh, welcome, James, and I want to give you a little opportunity to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit more about your background and what you've been doing these days.
0: Thanks, hey, safe. I appreciate it. I'm James Orr. Um, yeah, I, I took sabbatical probably about a year and a half ago now. Um, quasi, did sort of like a test retirement from real estate brokerage. And um, it turned into more of, a, <laughs> more of a full-time retirement sort of thing. But in my spare time, I'm uh, working on our software that does Financial modeling of real estate investments for like mom and pop landlords primarily. Like, you know, how long will it take you to acquire the number of rentals you want, and how risky is the strategy you're considering versus another strategy? And so, in my spare time, in my quasi retirement, that's more of what I've been doing lately. So, yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Oh, great to have you on! And I listened to your one of your most recent seminars, uh, podcasts, and just a, a wealth of information about. Uh, different ways to invest in real estate, especially with changing market conditions. And uh, I've always been impressed by your mastery of some of the creative ways to purchase real estate um, and your uh, real strength and analysis of deals and of portfolios. Uh, Really good stuff to have when you're an investor to really know what you're doing and uh, know all the numbers. So James, again, welcome. I think what's on the mind of most investors these days is the uh, tumultuous market conditions that we're experiencing now and the changes, uh, particularly in interest rates. We got inflation, we got a stock market that is plunging, if you will, Uh, just never know what it's gonna do. And uh, investors are really not used to that for the past 14 years or so we've had kind of tailwinds behind us conditions have been great that's made. Uh, our lending much easier, but now things have changed so I just want to see from your perspective as just someone in the know about how some of these things affect market conditions, what do you think is this going to mean for. The real estate market. Uh, what's it meaning right now, and what do you see coming at us in the next year or two?
0: Wow, where do I begin with that? Um, <laughs> how can I even start to do that? So uh, the first thing I'll start with. I, I, I was uh, I was thinking about this a little bit when we were when you asked me to kind of be on and, and do the call. And so I went back and I did some research and it turns out it, it was a good idea to do this research. So I went back and I looked through the 30-year mortgage interest rates going all the way back to 1970. And I wanted to find out, you know, how crazy is it that we're seeing, you know, at the time of this recording, probably around 7% interest rates, you know, give or take a little bit if you're doing owner occupier investor. And, and I wanted to know, is this like really extreme or is this like a still relatively low sort of interest rate? And uh, so I went back and I looked, and what I did is I did a percentage of the time every month that was above this 7% threshold. And Dave, I just guess, how, how much percentage-wise over the last 50 years, I think it's 52 years or so now, how many over the last 52 years, what percentage of the time were we above 7% as an interest rate? you have a guess?
1: I'm gonna, I've, I've uh, kind of listened to what you've been speaking about and doing some of my own research. I'm gonna guess... Um, seventy-three percent of the time, James.
0: No, it's not quite that high. It's fifty-eight percent of the time, okay. wow. which is still, I think, a lot higher than most folks would imagine. That's they right. think, oh my gosh, you know, we've been seeing two percent, three percent, four percent, five percent for the last, as you said, fourteen years or so. I don't know if it's been quite that long. I think when I looked at my numbers, I guess it is fourteen years. Two thousand four, I think, is the last time, approximately, when we were at seven uh, percent. Of course, I'm doing this without charts in front of me. I should have had those up, but. If you think about that, the last time we were at seven percent was like two thousand four or so. So these interest rates have been really, really low. It's been abnormally low, and so we've been having this—I don't know—almost like opposite of a perfect storm, a perfectly beautiful day. You know, where, where property, yeah, property prices have been going up, uh, rents have been going up, interest rates have been going down. So even though property prices were going up, interest rates were going down, which mean what meant which meant for a while. Properties were still on sale, even though the prices were higher than they were before. If you kind of think about what your monthly payment would be when you're buying the property, it's actually less than if you had bought the property the year before, right. which is crazy to think about. Right. And and that's not normal, right? So so I think now we're we're getting back to a more normal type of market, which I know people don't want to hear because they're like, oh, but you know, I was, when I was doing all my planning, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to buy a property this year and I'll save up enough. So I'll be able to buy a property a year or two or three from now. And I'll be able to get this same, you know, three or 4% interest rate. And so when I do my, you know, my like, you know, out in the hot tub math of will I be able to retire by buying these rental properties here? I've been using 4% or 5% or wherever the number has been. And that turns out to not have been a good assumption. And I think right now we're seeing a market where demand is still really strong. Uh, Like the number of um, the number of properties for sale is down. So we're seeing like a, 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 like lowering of inventory, but there's enough demand in the market where we're still having buyers. It's not like it's gone away. And I think maybe the fed will continue to raise rates in order to get this inflation out of control, like under control, but it hasn't stopped everything completely. It's definitely slowed it down. It's not like it was. But the last, at least from the pandemic and even before then, that is not normal. Like if you're trying to look at year-over-year numbers, a year-over-year comparison of you know how much inventory we had compared to a year ago last you know a year ago from now, or what interest rates were or anything like that you could, you should just throw all that away because you're looking at all time extremes on many fronts, you know, all time extremes for days on market, all time extremes for low interest rates. And so you can't compare now to then and say, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end because days on market is increased by 30%. Well, an increase by 30% from like 25 days, which 25 days is crazy. I mean, that more normal market is like I don't know, three months to six months for a property to sell. Right. So 90 days to 180 days. Right. So to think that, you know, going from 25 days, now it's increased to, I'm looking at a chart. I happen to have this one up because it's just down there. You know, I'm looking at this. We're probably at around 60 days or so for that. So even if it's doubled, that's still lower than normal. It's lower than what a typical market would say. So what was the question again, Dave? I'm like off on these tangents here, but I want to make sure I answer your question directly.
1: No, that's a good uh that's kind of a good recap of a historical perspective that a lot of us are just not looking at we're so used to in these last few years as you say very unusual low interest rates that when when these rates have gone up we we think it's the end of the world but it's actually approaching more normalcy so the question was with that uh, what is happening in the market right now? Is that causing, I mean, is it the end of the world? Is the market plunging? Are we, is real estate, we'll get into this later, but should we all be abandoning our portfolios now and saying this is not gonna work anymore? What are you yeah, seeing I in the market?
0: I, I don't think it's the end of the world. I, what I'm seeing in the market is inventory is down. Um, well, it, it's, so the number of new listings is down. But we're not selling as many as quickly as we were before. So the inventory is actually increasing. Um, And by the way, I think this is localized. So I'm I'm talking primarily about Northern Colorado, although I think it does apply to a lot of other markets as well. But we're seeing overall fewer sellers wanting to sell. And I think that trend is going to continue. And and here's why I think that trend is going to continue. If you think about all the sellers that bought properties and they locked in these ridiculously low in retrospect, interest rates, you know, I, I think the last interest rate I got was like 2.25 on a 30-year loan, which is insanely low. Now, the chance of me going out there and selling that property and losing my 2.25% interest rate is almost zero. It would take it would take some type of extreme motivation for me to want to get rid of that interest rate because it's it's almost like free money, right? If if inflation is normally I don't know, two to three percent, and your interest rate is two point two five. Your your actual interest rate is lower than what inflation is, so that's just crazy to think about. So you have all these folks that got you know two, three, four percent interest rates, and now interest rates are at seven. So there's like a there's a, a significant financial penalty, a disincentive for them to go out and sell their property, go buy one that's presumably more expensive at a higher interest rate, and take a double hit on that. So I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing fewer sellers sell their properties on the market we're seeing just a lack of new listings coming on um so i think that's one of the reasons why we're going to see that and that that i think will continue for a little while and no one knows maybe the fed chairman knows sort of what he's thinking but but i don't know like no one really knows what they're going to do with interest rates there's speculation that they're going to continue to raise rates if we see inflation still continue to be above where they're trying to get it at and they they've stated publicly that they want their interest rate to be around 2% and it's been whatever it was 8% or something crazy so it, they need to go down quite a bit and so one of the one of the ways one of the levers they kind of pull on in order to adjust inflation is they raise interest rates to try to slow down the economy. And that may hurt. I mean, that may really punish a lot of folks in the economy. You know, we're seeing prices of things go out of control, which is what the inflation is measuring and and how they're trying to get it under control. But they're really trying to push those rates up in order to get inflation under control and get the economy there. But that may slow down things quite a bit. So all the buyers that were struggling, affordability is at like all time lows. Um, you know, we're seeing prices go up really, really high over the last few years. And now with a combination of those, and the really high interest rates affordability, which is a measure of both those things, it's basically how affordable is a property based on the current price and the current interest rates that they can get on those. So affordability is like way, way down. And so you have a lot of folks that are priced out of buying houses, and they're they're really struggling to do that. So you take a, a big pool of the market that you used to have there, and you kind of pull that aside. Now, one of the things that is helping us is unlike the 2007 2008 sort of period where it was really really easy the the availability of financing was at at like all-time highs we were trying to like encourage the economy by allowing almost anybody who wanted to get a mortgage to get a mortgage so that was way up It has not gone up so this is very different than 2007 2008 the availability of mortgages is really really low right now a very safe place to be for making loans but I don't know. You've got these kind of factors of sellers not wanting to sell, so fewer properties available for sale. But you still have some demand for people who want to go buy properties, except they're kind of forced to do it at these high prices and these really high interest rates, which hurts a little bit to be able to do that. I don't think you're going to see a lot of motivated sellers, at least in the short term. And one of the reasons why I think that is you've got all these folks that they bought one year, two year, three years ago, and property prices have gone up 20 percent in that that really short amount of time. So Even if they're motivated, they could go out and sell their property with a real estate agent and be out of it without having to be upside down or any type of really crazy motivation. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of motivated sellers in the short term, at least. That may change. I mean, who knows? Do I think prices are going to go down? Maybe. I mean, is it it unreasonable that if you've had a roller coaster going up like like really, really fast and gaining 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 percent? Uh, and value over the last few years that it kind of overshoots a little bit and it kind of has to come back down a little bit. Yeah. Do I think they're going to go down really, really low? No. And I think part of the reason why is inflation. If you think about what it costs to build a house, all the materials that go into it, you know, the plywood, the, the sinks, the light fixtures, the windows, all those have significantly gone up in cost. And so there's, there's a semi hard floor as to how low prices can go based on what it costs to rebuild that property. Um, and so I, I think we're going to see prices. I, I don't, I should also say to start this off, and I probably should have started with this. I have no idea what the future holds. I am <laughs> horrible at predictions. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what's going to happen. I, and I think that the real answer to this is you should be thinking more than short-term. I think if you give a long enough time horizon I think everything looks like it's smoothed out, right? Like you see a little up and down in the marketplace. I think overall over a very long period of time, real estate tends to keep pace with inflation, and so if you think about that, slow and steady over a very long period of time, real estate tends to go up in value and so if you think about it in terms of a much longer perspective, I think that's reasonable expectation. Now, do you ask me what's going to happen in a year or two? I don't know Dave. I really don't i like I can't predict what's going to happen. If the Fed keeps seeing inflation being really high, I think they're going to keep raising rates. And if you're wondering how high it can go, it's been the eighteen. You know that was in the eighties. You know, forty years ago right. doesn't seem unrealistic. Right. If if they really need to get things under control for it to keep going up until we we scream, okay, Uncle. You know, we're gonna we're going stop inflating prices and and have it be a little bit more normal. So, yeah, yeah,
1: very good. Yep, great points there. I I think it's pretty well known that if the Fed keeps raising rates and keeps raising them and keeps raising them, that is absolutely going to create a dip in prices because the affordability, as you talked about, just gets so, the affordability is so hard uh, or so low that people just can't buy. And the only way they're going to buy is to buy at a lower
0: price. Well, uh, so I, I do want to comment on this. If, if you study history you will learn what they did back in the 80s when we saw these 18% interest rates. Do you remember what they were doing back then, Dave? Uh,
1: I was young, kind of like you were back then. Okay,
0: yeah. so if you go study history, we, we had all these types of um, taking over debt or doing rap financing or things like that where sellers were then saying, okay, you know, we realize 18% interest rates are really hard. Only some people are gonna be able to qualify for those. We'll go ahead and we will carry back financing for you. And if you've got a seller who has a, 3%, 4% loan, and they have a bunch of equity, maybe they're willing to do wrap financing where they say, okay, we'll accept payments of whatever it is, $1,800 a month on this particular house. And we'll carry that for two or three or four or five years or whatever the period of time is. And I'll make payments on my underlying 3% financing rate. And we'll just keep that there until you go buy a property. And so I, I think there are solutions to that, which may I don't know, help slow down stuff. This is like the tools that come out in your toolbox. You know, when all these, when the market got really, really hot and we saw these multiple offers, real estate agents switched to having certain types of tools we use in these extremely hot multiple offer type markets. And those are going away. I mean, they're not completely gone. We still see occasionally multiple offers, but they're not as prevalent as they were a year ago or two years ago. But now maybe we're switching over to this RAP financing, loan assumption, you know, you find FHA loan, if you're an owner occupant, you want to buy a property, move in there, live there for a year, and then convert it to a rental, you know, strategy like that, where you kind of go do that. I mean, you can go uh, take over existing FHA financing at the old three and a half four 4% loans. And so I think there's enough of those out there that that's an opportunity for some investors, depending on what stage of their career they're in.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I know that's one of your specialties, as I mentioned, the creative financing. I think in the last number of years, the, the market has been so hot that sellers have had the hammer and buyers with the, some of the creative ideas you're talking about, assuming mortgages, wrap financing, yeah. um, you know, lease options. I don't know if you, remember, you you mentioned that yet, but I I know you would. Uh they just haven't been as much in demand because again, sellers have had the hammer and those are really more buyer tools. But now with it with rising interest rates, um, and the other market forces were coming to more of a balanced market between buyers and sellers, where some of these tools used by buyers uh can come into play. So it's great to hear about those. Um again, yeah, it's- I guess kind of Leads to the question of, like, so. Let's make the assumption rates are going to continue to rise. Yeah. Does that mean the real estate? Do you think the real estate market is going to die then, or are is there still opportunity for investors out there? Um, starting with some of those tools that you mentioned, and maybe you can get a little deeper into some of those too. <clears throat>
0: Yeah, I I do think there's less opportunity. I don't think the real estate market is dead. Um, Historically, before like the last really hot market, whatever that's been, depending on how you measure it. But historically, real estate investors have added liquidity to the marketplace. So if you think about a seller that has had a hard time selling, it's typically the real estate investor that comes in, solves whatever problem that particular seller is facing, whether it's the property needs repairs before they can actually sell at retail and get a loan from a, a you know traditional retail buyer, or um, you know they, they need to sell very, very quickly. And so there's not enough time for them to do it. But like all the problems the seller has typically had, historically, what a real estate investor has done is they've come in and they've added liquidity to the marketplace and solutions to those particular problems. So we've had a period of time where, almost any property that a seller wanted to sell whether it needed work or they needed to sell quickly they could put it on the market and have 10 offers within you know 30 days you know and and so there's been less of a need for a real estate investor to come in when sellers had other solutions and i think we're heading back to a period where some sellers not all but but a increasing percentage of sellers and it's a relatively small percentage but an increasing small percentage of sellers are going to need those solutions again and now the other thing that, that's kind of interesting is we're not, we as individual mom and pop, you know, real estate investors are not the only people in this space anymore. There are large companies that are doing these iBuyer programs where they'll come in and they're advertising very heavily and they'll come in and they'll, they'll buy a property and they'll immediately, you know, put it on the market and resell it or something like that. But I do think that there is room for mom and pops to come in and offer niche solutions, especially markets where these iBuyer type um, companies are not in Um so I, I think yes, it, in the more traditional sense, all these creative solutions and trying to buy properties at a at a deep discount where they need to come in and do work and they have enough room in there to to hold the property for three or six months or whatever it is in order to get the property sold and you know opportunities to use you know money like yours in order to be able to go buy and fix and flip properties. I think those solutions are still available and all the creative ones are available as well. And then I think the 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 like meat of the market because I think just looking at the numbers, there are more mom and pop landlords, people that are buying properties for long-term rental than there are people doing fix and flips. I think the numbers are are skewed more toward um, buy and hold. And you could correct me if I'm wrong on that, but that's my gut feeling in the marketplace is just number of transactions that happen based on one or another. So the question that becomes, are mom and pop landlords, people that are buying properties to rent out, are they have an opportunity in our upcoming market if interest rates stay where they are? And I think, yes, but there's a whole bunch of caveats to that. Number one is you have to look at the investment more than just cash flow. There's a school of thought, there's a a large group of people out there that believe that cash flow is everything and that you don't buy a property unless it has cash flow. And that's the only reason you buy a rental property. And you can make Almost any property cash flow if you put enough down. So, like if you came in here and you put 20% down in our marketplace and you tried to buy a rental property with our current prices and our current interest rates and our current rents, most of those properties with 20% down are going to be negative cash flow. They're going to be negative cash flow even if you take into account the tax benefits of depreciation. So, when you look at those two, they're going to be negative. But if you increase the amount you have down, If you go from 20% to 25% to 30%, 35%, eventually, even if you get to full 100% down, you buy the property all cash, you then get cap rate. Cap rate is the net operating income divided by the purchase price, which is the amount of cash on cash return you're getting on a property that's free and clear. And so if you think about that, the more you put down, the closer you get to cap rate right? So your cash on cash, you put 20% down, maybe negative and maybe, you know, negative 10% cash on cash. You put 25% down and maybe negative 5% cash on cash. You put 30% down and maybe 0% cash on cash, your break even, but more than that down. Now it's sort of like, you know, whatever it is, 2% cash on cash. Eventually, if you put a hundred percent down, it gets to what cap rate is and cap rate on a property might be, I don't know, four or five, six, seven, eight, nine percent depending on what market and what type of property you buy somewhere in that ballpark. So I think you need to look at the overall return you're seeing on that investment. And that would include a speculative guess as to how much appreciation you might get I think you need to look at that and say, you know, my best guess is over the long-term, I'll see about 3% a year on a property. Just kind of guessing there. You have to look at what amount you're paying down on the loan if you got financing. So your debt pay down portion of it, that tax benefit of depreciation and the cash flow you're seeing on the property. And if you add all four of those together and technically you're supposed to include the return you're getting on the reserves you set aside for owning a rental property, I'd be, I I should punish myself, slap myself for, for not saying that, but really it's those five. It's the four from real estate and then the reserve money you got there. But if you add up all those, and to say okay i'm getting let's say it's 0% cash on cash um, you know maybe 3% from my uh, depreciation amounts maybe you know 3% times 5 cuz it's leveraged on the appreciation so that's 15 and then maybe your debt pay down i know and if you put 20% down on a property the return you get on that 20% down payments over the course of the life of the loan is about 5.51% per year. If you put 5% down, you do like a nomad property, it's 10.51%. But that's a different discussion. Right. But if you look at all those together, you know you're probably looking at you know around 20% overall return, even though your cash flow might be negative. Well, if you think about that, if, how bad is a 20% return on investment? You know, James, that's still a good return. Yeah, anybody's book. Yeah, and so I think that's the thing you need to look at. You just say, "Okay, look, your cash flow is ugly." And I definitely d- need to set aside the money for that negative cash flow if I'm going to buy a property, and it's going to be negative. You have to say, okay, I need this amount for down payment. And let me go ahead and set aside a year or two or three of negative cash flow upfront just to be prudent about this and kind of hold that. But then I think over time, rents tend to kind of creep up with inflation a little bit, and so eventually your negative cash flow will go down, and maybe a year, two, three, four, five years from now you'll have. Break even cash flow or positive cash flow. And then the investment characteristics look different. But even during that time when you have negative cash flow, the overall return is probably pushing 20%. And I, you have to run the numbers to find out what this means. But then you got to decide okay, I've got this one 20% down. Um, 20% return type of investment I can make if I buy these rental properties. What else is out there that I can invest in? Well, I could do stocks. I could do crypto. I could I could invest in your fund. I can you know I could do all these different things in order to get a return on my money. Of of those. And the risk measure of those, because each one has its own different risk characteristics. You know, investing in stocks, very different. Investing in bonds versus savings versus CDs versus your fund versus real estate. All of those have different just risk characteristics. And so you say, for the amount of risk I'm willing to take and the return I'm willing to get, which one of these makes sense? And I think for a lot of folks, real estate still makes really good sense to do over the long term. If you tell me I'm buying it and I'm getting out in six months... I don't know. I mean, unless you're going in there and adding value by doing some type of fix and flip or you're adding some type of value to the property, if you're just doing it to to speculate in the market, probably not, especially since the cost to get, especially out of the investment are tend to be pretty significant in real estate compared to other investments. But I think you look at that and you think, where else can I get this return? And is that a worthwhile risk to return kind of trade-off for me to make? And I think for a lot of folks, it is acceptable.
1: Awesome. Of course, my fund is number one, but real <laughs> estate is a close second. Actually, I've invested in both and done very well in both. Um, yeah, just want, um, I think, just to kind of summarize what you said, and you gave us some great information there. It's just, you know, his, it might be a tough time now to, to buying is a little bit, you're going to pay a little bit more, your cash flow May not be even positive in properties you're going to pick up, but historically, and as you said, historically, we're really not that much higher now with rates than we have been in the past. The greatest builder of wealth has always been real estate and should continue to be. You still got to buy very intelligently and hold for the long term, but uh, real estate can still be uh, a great investment over time.
0: Well, Dan, I want to uh, add I
1: well, want to add one
0: more thing to this discussion if we can. So I did a um I did a podcast episode. It's probably like two weeks ago now. And one of the questions that came up was, you know, with interest rates at 7% and having this negative cash flow with a, a reasonable 20% or so down payment, you know, is it better for me to go ahead and save up money to buy properties free and clear where I get rid of the kind of like um, the interest rate component of this, where I have negative cash flow, or it's ugly to have this you know, negative cash flow on a property. And so I went and I did some analysis. And for just this one kind of sample case, it's a reasonable person saving 15% of their income. I figured out how long it would take them if they saved up 20% down. I did 15%, 20%, 25% down. But for the 20% down number, I had them save up 20% down, buy a rental property, save up another 20% down, buy another rental property. And I figured out how long it would take them to be financially independent. Then I had the same exact person saving the same same exact amount of money, um, buying the same exact property. But instead of putting 20% down, they saved up until they had to buy the property free and clear, where they didn't have any mortgage on it at all. And so the question I have for you is, how much longer did it take the person who is saving up to buy properties free and clear to be financially independent as the person who is putting 20% down and buying leverage rentals? What do you think the difference in time it took was?
1: I'm going to guess one year, James.
0: Oh, so you must have seen my presentation. I did. See? It's it's so surprising to people I, when I, I tell them. I was blown away
1: by that.
0: Right. It's it's So I'll say it out loud so that everyone can be very clear of what we just said. The person who saved up 20% down, bought a rental property, then waited until they had another 20% down, bought their next rental property, and they kept buying those rental properties as quickly as they could until they got to, up to 10 rentals. Um, and and then if they, how long did it take them to get to the point where they had enough money coming in to be financially independent versus the person who saved up and bought the property free and clear with no, uh, no loan at all. And it took them like 20 something years to buy their first property to be free and clear. And then the next one was much, much faster because they had a lot of extra savings from that one rental property. But it only took them one year more to be financially independent than somebody who was buying the rental properties and buying them with 20% down. And I think that blows people's minds. So if somebody is out there thinking, you know, it's really hard for me to pull the trigger in this market, just save money, you know, invest in something else, you know, invest in your fund or invest in stocks or whatever makes sense for you in the meantime while you're waiting to save up your money. And then when you're ready to buy a rental, whether that's buying a property that's free and clear or buying a property with 50% down where now it does cash flow, or you know 30% down or whatever the numbers make sense. But don't stress out. It's not that much longer for you to be financially independent if you take your time and you save up and you buy these properties free and clear. And the risk dynamics of a free and clear portfolio, very different than the risk dynamics of someone putting 5% down or 20% down or 25% down and buying rental properties. So-
1: A lot of good points there for- um yeah, people think highly leveraging is the way to go. And I'm not gonna poo-poo that because I did that, but I've also done the strategy of buying and paying down properties and having them free and clear, and that that uh, and of uh, that for me and other investors I know has worked really well getting properties paid off. Yeah. Um so looking to wrap up now, I think again what's on the mind of a lot of investors, James, is like how is what's happening now different than what happened in two thousand seven, two thousand uh, eight? How would you describe what's different? I mean, you started explaining that already that yeah. um, you know conditions are are different now, uh, but maybe you can wrap up with that. Do you think we're heading into another two thousand eight uh, or? Um, is, are things different now that we're, we're not going to see a crash and maybe more of a just a leveling out of the market?
0: Yeah, so I can't predict whether or not we're going to see a crash or a leveling out. I really don't know. And, and I would have thought if you had asked me like right when the pandemic was hitting what was going to happen in the real estate market, I would not have predicted it's going to go up. <laughs> whatever this 30% in three years or right. something like that. And just, yeah. I would not have thought that at all. And so my prediction skills are, are very lacking. I will tell you, looking at the numbers, the real estate market is very different than it was in 2007, 2008. So the, the number one thing I can think of off the top of my head is, um, the availability of credit to people with questionable credit scores is very different. Like we were giving loans to almost anybody who wanted a loan at that point, and we were giving a lot of them, you know, nothing down or, um, you know, 3%, 5% down loans to people that probably shouldn't have been getting loans at all. And then on the back end of this, we were basically packaging those up, calling them A-plus type of uh, loan products and selling them, securitizing them on the market, which was another issue altogether because exactly. then we said all those fail and it kind of compounded.
1: Derivatives and things like that.
0: Yeah. And so I think that's very different than we saw before. I also didn't think – I don't remember seeing us have this massive of a run-up leading into 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, and we have here. So a lot of the folks that bought a property you know, even two or three years ago, they've got a huge cushion of equity. In fact, if you look at how much equity we have now in our properties as, as a whole, like this the whole country, I think we're at all-time highs. I think the amount of equity we have sitting in our properties right now is at all-time highs which was not how we were in 2007 2008. And so the question then becomes well how does you know having our our credit criteria, the the availability of credit to people be really, really low and have really good underwriting standards for those that are trying to get loans. So that's a much safer position than we were, you know, that many years ago. And the fact that a lot of people that were motivated to sell before that, you know, if they needed to sell, they probably could still sell and actually break even or come out of it with a little bit of profit in it, that they'd still have this or be able to borrow against it if they need to, to kind of hold on to some stuff, having that be different. What impact does that have moving forward? Even if rates get much higher than they were in this kind of like pre-2007, 2008 period. And I think that that's going to make a big difference. I, I don't know if it's going to save us from whatever might happen. I mean, because I'm sure we could screw it up if we wanted to, right? There are things the Fed could do. Uh, There are things that we could do as, as a group uh to kind of make this go ugly. But I think overall, it's very different than it was in 2007, 2008. And my best guess is that even if we do see a softening or a slowing down of appreciation rates or giving a little bit back, I don't think we're going to see a massive um, kind of decline in the market like we did then. But who knows? I really Thank don't. Thank
1: you. Yeah, just to add to that, you know, from a lender point of view, as you said, the availability of credit is not as great. The underwriting standards, you know, the, there are no no doc loans. Maybe some are doing those, but those are those are not really part of the picture anymore. You've still got a housing shortage right now uh, that really began back, back in 08 when people stopped building and they've never really caught up. And you have like in areas like Colorado, still high desirability, which is gonna keep people coming and propping up those prices. Uh, yeah. And you know, as you said, people who have low interest rate mortgages, and they're looking to sell, they're not going to drop their price too much and go into a higher rate mortgage from what for what they're going to potentially buy um, if they've got this 2 or 3% mortgage on a house that they're in right now. They'll probably drop a little bit, but um, be re- reluctant just to dump something and then get into a much higher interest rate mortgage. So Great points, James. Hey, thank you so much for enlightening us. Um, You know, just a takeaway is that it feels like even though things are changing in the market and it might be softening, don't seem to be heading for uh, a major crash. But, you know, you never know what's going to come down the pike. we got to just be smart investors and uh, keep being really vigilant about what we're investing in. So yeah the
0: one one tip for people that are moving forward from here is when you look at charts try to look more than just the last 3 or 4 or 5 years. So when someone shows you that you know we're up you know foreclosures are up you know 130%. Yeah, they're up 130% from almost zero. So you need to go look back at historical data over 10, 15, 20, even longer years if you can just to find out what is more normal and are we moving toward a more normal type of market.
1: Well said. Thank you very much, James. And um, yeah, we'll be in close touch. And thank you all. Thank you. Have a great one. Bye-bye. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Thousand Oaks is harder than ever. Book a call